It's time to add a new tool to our Musician Toolkit. And hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of the Musician Toolkit. My name is David Lane. It is great to be with you once again. I hope all of you are having a great start to your week on this Monday or whenever you're happening to listen to this episode. Coming up on future episodes that'll happen throughout the rest of 2023, I'm going to have multiple episodes about listening to different types of music, Uh, you know, essential pieces that I think that uh, you should know from the classical world, from the jazz world, some of some of my favorites from other genres. Um, Occasionally, I'm going to have episodes on that. But I thought first, we should have a primer on listening. And uh, I thought about different things to call this episode. But the one that I settled on was the listening approach for classical versus non-classical music and why that division, you know, such a broad division. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. Musicians need to know how to listen well in order to be at their best. I mentioned that in the previous episode, uh, but for a different purpose. I was talking about listening, well, to, to improve both your friendships, but also to improve your networking. If you're better at listening, and you put more emphasis on that than you do just talking, especially talking about yourself, you'll be better in friendships and relationships and when it comes to networking. Well, of course, if you if you are good at listening, you'll be a better musician. And to shun the incredulous advice I once heard in a master class when I was in college, you should not shut yourself up in a box and avoid listening to other music in order to avoid outside influences. Uh, And yes, this was really said by a visiting composer, and he had a degree of self-importance, even comparing himself to Bartok, not just in terms of quality, but in terms of popularity. He was a great example of self-delusion. I will not say who he is, but that was something that he said. He didn't advise listening to other music as a composer. And I thought about that a lot over the years. I mean, it's been a long time since I heard that. And who knows, he may have even changed his mind since then. So I may not be giving him much credit. But I think on the contrary, you should be diving in to the world of music every chance you get as a listener. The solution to being your own musician is not to avoid outside influences, but rather to avoid too few of influences. You're going to hear other music. You're going to hear other musicians. And you know, one of the mistakes that I made as uh, an aspiring composer was kind of focusing my my attention onto too few instead of thinking what do i like about a variety of of musicians a variety of composers so this is the case whether or not you're a composer a songwriter a conductor or a performer who just wants to develop their own take true originality is not avoiding the flow but it's having an abundance of of ingredients to choose from that you can combine in different ways. Now, I have to say, when it comes to mixed metaphors, that's probably not my best one, but you want to have a variety of things that you can choose from. One thing that's true about most musicians and non-musicians, and when I say non-musician, I just mean 
not someone who's a student, but someone who has like never really tried to learn music in any way. They've only ever listened to music. So one thing that's true about everybody mm-hmm. is that most of us love to listen to music. Now, the difference is, or that should be, when we're talking about non-musicians, is that they tend to listen to music by really asking one question. Do I like this or not? Their listening strategies may be that they notice the melody, certain riffs or motivic patterns, the lyrics, um, and the overall mood or mood changes. I find that sometimes this is also the usual limit of what a musician notices too. And you should notice those things. But if you want to get something out of music, you need to be doing more. So this is, once again, episode 13 of the Musician Toolkit. And I wondered how long it would take since episode one, when I introduced 20 tools, to come up with the 21st. I'm not saying you need to go back to episode one if you've forgotten, or if you're coming in, you never listened to episode one. You want to know what are the 20 tools? I'll briefly recap them. I won't elaborate on them. Go, I would say go to episode one for that. But the skills are in no particular order. One, the skill of sight reading. Two, a well-developed ear. Three, the ability to transpose. Four, the ability to improvise. Five, the ability to compose. Six, the ability to practice. Seven, the ability to play any written rhythm. Eight, mastery of one instrument. Nine, experience with other instruments. Ten, the ability to sing. Eleven, knowledge of the piano or keyboard. Twelve, knowledge of music theory. Thirteen, knowledge of music history. Fourteen, the ability to follow other musicians. Fifteen, the ability to play in many styles or genres. 16, experience with conducting or leading other musicians. 17, experience with studio production. 18 is the ability to teach. 19 is the ability to memorize music. 20, for professional musicians, is uh, basic business and marketing skills. So those are the 20 tools that I listed in episode one. Now let us welcome the 21st tool that I didn't mention before, and that is the skill of active listening. I want to go ahead and say this right now. There is nothing wrong with passive listening, aka also known as music for the background while you do something else, also known as wallpaper music. (laughs) Music can be a tool for our workflow when we're doing other things that, you know, hopefully don't involve making our own music at the same time. That sometimes can be a problem. But, you know, if you're uh, doing the dishes, if you're cleaning up, you know, your, your room, your workspace, or if you're exercising, you have music on, but you're, you're focused on something else. Uh, that's fine. Music. That is one of the tools music serves. And we shouldn't say that it's inferior, uh, to do that or that the music that gets put there most often is inferior. So I wanted to say that. I also want to say this, if you've only ever listened to a piece a song or an album in this way, wallpaper music, I think that you relinquish the qualifications to judge whether or not it was good. I would say the same thing if we were talking about audiobooks or if you're reading while you're distracted or if you're watching a movie while your attention is somewhere else. All art, whether it's formal or popular, it demands our full attention before casting a verdict. Also, about that verdict... 
remember that music is not a competition. All art. It's not a competition. It's okay if you don't like something after giving it a fair chance that other people like. And it's also okay if someone else doesn't like what you do. Our opinions are subjective. And it's perfectly fine to have different opinions. But the question is, did you give it a fair chance? Now, here's something to really consider. You don't actually have to like the music to get some benefit from listening to it. I'll say that one more time. You don't actually have to like the music in order to get some benefit to listening from listening to it. So if if your requirements for listening to a piece is that you think you'll like it, and if you're not liking it to stop, that's that is what non-musicians do. If you're a musician, you need to stay in there, give it a fair chance. If you think that there's some value from it, and some of those values could include just knowledge of it. You know, if this is a piece that's popular, um, even if you say I'm not into pop music, if you're that type of thing, um, if it's if it's winning Grammys, if it's number one on the chart, or if it's a classical piece or jazz piece that everyone seems to talk about, I think you need to know it as a musician. It needs to be something you're familiar with. Um, if you're a performer, you're going to get asked about pieces of music and you don't want to just be, have the elitist answer. It's like, oh, it's not my type of music. I don't know that. I've talked to a lot of teachers over the past couple of years for various reasons, most notably, notably for getting input for this podcast. And I find more and more the teachers that are staying full, they're not the ones who are saying, I don't really listen to Taylor Swift. I don't really listen to Billie Eilish, but they're making time to get to know those pieces. So if a student really wants to know, they know all about it, probably know how to play it and definitely know how to teach it. And whether or not they like it doesn't even come into the equation, but they've learned the music. All right, let's discuss how to listen. So let's get to the title of today's episode that, in, that features this uh, descriptor, classical versus non-classical. So you might think to yourself, that's rather simplistic, isn't it? Hundreds of genres and maybe thousands of subgenres in the world and lumping classical into a category all of its own versus everything else. Or maybe you didn't think the word simplistic. Maybe you thought elitist. And, uh, and I, sh I assure you, I understand, but uh, neither is true. I lump classical music into its own category when we're talking about listening, because the way you get to know the music is wholly different than any other genre. If you want to explore the works of the Beatles, where do you go to for listening? I'm going to assume probably the albums that were actually released by the Beatles, right? If you want to check out the songs of Taylor Swift, do you go anywhere else other than her own recordings? Well, this is not the case if you want to check out the music of Ludwig von Beethoven. You don't listen to Beethoven recording and performing his own music. You listen to other soloists and orchestras playing his music. And um, there's a seemingly limitless number of options for that. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. But Beethoven lived way before recordings were possible. So this isn't even a fair comparison. And, uh, and that's a good point. 
So let's uh, let's talk about Igor Stravinsky instead. He died in 1971. During the time that he was making music, it was the same time as uh, Glenn Miller, the Beatles again, Patsy Cline, so many other artists. And um, all those other artists I just mentioned, people would listen to them, their recordings, their music themselves. We go listen to the Glenn Miller Orchestra playing Glenn Miller's music. We listen to Patsy Cline singing her own music. And Stravinsky, by the way, he did indeed perform and conduct many of his own pieces. I think you can find just about every orchestral piece that he wrote conducted by himself. But even the most adamant Stravinsky fan I know, hi, Bob, wouldn't he would not recommend that you listen to Igor as a performer or conductor of his own works. And by the way, I ran this by him and he he said that was a fair point. <laughs> he would not recommend that you go listen to Igor Stravinsky as a performer or conductor of his own works. Not that you shouldn't try it, but that's not the place to go. He was a composer. He was not the best conductor or performer. You might want to try Robert Kraft, Leonard Bernstein, Simon Rattle, Andrew Davis, Lucy Horsch, Maris Janssens, and I'm really just getting started. Before I finish my point on classical versus non-classical listening, there's an important element that needs to be mentioned if you're going to really get the most out of listening, and that is that you need to commit to listening multiple times. In November 2021, I conducted a poll on Twitter, and... I asked this, this was specifically for classical music. So I asked, how many times typically do you have to listen to a symphony without a written score for reference or another major classical work before you feel like you actually know the music? And I, I gave four choices that people could choose. Just once, two times, three times, or four or more times. And, I, you know, these are all classical music fans that chimed in. I got several comments. I got retweets. I uh, got a total of 270 votes on that poll. 3.3% said they just need one time. 3.3% said they needed two times. So, you know, we're, we're, we're at 6.6% of those votes that say that it's okay to have two or fewer times. All right. 14.1% said three times. But 79.3, nearly 80% of the people who voted said that you needed four or more times of listening to a piece of music, especially, and again, this is for classical, but I'm going to go ahead and say to really know any particular music you need to have given yourself four times or more to really listen to it now here's the thing if you are judging music on and deciding whether or not to listen based on whether or not you you like it you probably haven't given it four listens we make decisions like that after one listen and we might reluctantly try it again and we we might give it a second listen and if it doesn't click with us a lot of times we we don't listen again well again if that twitter poll is you know to be compared to any kind of exact science which i know it's not but i think it's a it's a fair point of what people's experiences are 
yeah, only six percent of people say that two listens is enough. So here's a breakdown of strategies how I would recommend to listen to classical versus non-classical. So for for classical, or let's just say for composer-driven music, like you're 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 interested in the music written by Brahms or Beethoven or um, you know a specific composer, rather than you know, trying to listen to everything that the London Symphony Orchestra recorded, which would take you a very long time. <laughs> um, listen to a variety of conductors and orchestras. And so for the sake of time, I'll say limit it to four. If you, But if you start to love it, keep going. But give yourself four lessons. But different orchestras, different conductors. When I get to a list of classical pieces, I'm going to offer four suggestions of each, but you're certainly not limited to that. Um, that'll be in a future episode. For non-classical, that is to say performer-driven music, when you're listening to hear the specific performer, you know, either do other songs or do their own songs, or their own music, uh, listen to the same album four times. Um, you know, since you're not comparing a lot of variety maybe three times but you know i would say, i'm gonna go ahead and say three or four times listen to the same album listen to the same song if you're just trying a song now the next point i'm gonna make is actually the original idea for this episode i was going to do a whole episode with just this but it would have been like three minutes long if you are a classical musician a performer here is a special listening strategy for if you want to listen to the piece you're working on I did this with a Bach piece I was practicing uh, last year, and I thought it was it was really great. So you pick a movement um, or the whole piece if it's not very long, maybe one at a time, and you queue up about five different versions, five different performers playing this piece, and listen to them all in one sitting or as few of sittings as possible, back to back to back to back to back. And this is the blessing of having YouTube and Spotify and Amazon Music and um, Apple Music and other streaming services. I wish I could have done this in the 90s when I was spending 15 to $20 per CD. And, um, you know, in a lot of cases, just kind of taking a shot. Uh, or I would go to like the Penguin Guide or the Gramophone Guide and get recommendations. But like I couldn't try them myself. It was a revelation when I could actually sample different conductors, as many as I wanted, of a classical piece and decide what I really liked about it. So the reason this is good for performers is that you will hear five different interpretations and you'll almost certainly hear something you liked, at least one thing from all five performances and something that you think I could I could do this. I like that tempo. I like this way of playing the trill. I like that, the retardando and that one that didn't happen in this one. This will help you shape your own original approach as opposed to just hearing one or two different performers play it and becoming highly influenced to copy them. Okay, I want to give you a, re a realistic active listening goal. This is maybe the first assignment that I have offered from this podcast. I want you to shoot on focusing on one album or one major classical work per week. I'm not saying to get rid of your passive listening. Keep listening to your favorites. Keep listening to things just in the background. But I want you to set aside time every week 
or every two weeks if you're very busy to choose a piece, a song, or one album that's highly acclaimed, that people talk about, that people say you should know this, and give it as many listens as you can stand. And, uh, you know, maybe this is the album Revolver by the Beatles, or maybe it's Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, just two different examples. So what to listen for? Uh, here's a general checklist. And, you know, for those of you listening, uh, I'm going to create a document and put put a link to that in the show notes that you can go and uh, download for free. And of course, it is something that you can certainly add to it. But, uh, you know, check that out. But I'll say these out loud. So this is no matter what kind of music you're listening for. He's, here are some things that you can ask yourself while you're listening to give yourself focal points. You can ask yourself, what is the instrumentation? What type of scales are being used? What is the meter? Does the meter change? What are the changes? Um, if you want to give yourself a challenge, listen to some, you know, some of the early albums of Rush or Yes. And uh, I was trying to think there was another one. It was like, you know, Gentle Giant. It's, uh, you know, listening to those and trying to keep up with what are the time signatures at any given time. That'll really challenge your listening. You have to listen hard for that. Uh, what is the structure? You know, you know whether we're talking about song form with verses and choruses and bridge and intro and uh, you know instrumental solos and or maybe we're talking about you know sonata form and you know two or three different themes with the second one being in a different key and then the development and then the recapitulation. Uh, obviously, the more you know about theory, the more it'll help you when you're listening. And of course, the more you listen, the more it'll help you understand theory. That's how this works. A big cycle. What's going on behind the melody? Sometimes when we're listening, we're just listening to the lead singer, the lead uh, vocalist or the, or the violins with the melody. But what's going on in the background? What's going on underneath it? Um, especially in sophisticated works, there's a lot going on. You want to give that some attention. Try to hear what every instrumentalist is doing, what every background vocalist is doing. What type of harmonic language is being used? Is it based on triads? Is it a lot of seventh chords, like if you're listening to jazz? Um, or is it a lot of clusters? You could be listening to something that's kind of dissonant. Um, if you're listening to something, you know, like uh, kind of early 20th century American composers, you know, or maybe someone like uh, Paul Hindemith, um, you you might be listening to quartal harmony, harmony based in fourths or fifths. So if you can figure out, well, like, what is the harmonic language of this piece? Um, what are some of the most common rhythm patterns? Could you pause the music and go clap or tap out those rhythms? Um, what is the overall mood of the music? And uh, are there changes throughout? And how do you think those moods are achieved? What is the composer or the performer doing to create those moods? What are the chords or the chord progressions? Could you play them yourself? What are the effects of dynamics throughout the music? Dynamics are loud and soft signs. What are the different types of articulations used, such as staccatos, accents, slurs, and uh, tenutos, and other, other forms of, of expressing the notes? How would you generally describe the pace and the development? There's some pieces I love, just how it builds and builds and 
listening to how it builds over the course of the piece. Um, technical aspects. How is the mix, the reverb, the use of other effects? This is how I came to really appreciate pop music. I, I was kind of elitist and I didn't really care for it. But I started realizing they put more emphasis on technical aspects. And, and I know old school musicians that are like, well, you know, when I was a kid, you just picked up the guitar and it was all about how well you could play it and not the effects you put on it. <laughs> there are a lot of guitarists that really don't like um, the edge from U2 for that influence. But I think it's an art in itself. I think studio craft uh, is as much of an art. And, and, you know, I think later on we're going to dive into this and you're going to find out just how good their ears are uh, in the studio to do what they do. And, and it's worth checking out music that puts a lot of emphasis on studio craft. So what's going on there? See if you can figure it out. What if you had to reproduce it yourself? What would, or if you had to work with somebody, would you just tell them, listen to this and imitate it? Or would you have some knowledge of what's going on? Just for kind of pop, rock, hip hop, other albums, and basically albums that feature primarily vocal music. I'm going to say, um, li listen one time just for the bass. Listen one time just for the drums. Listen to the keyboards exclusively. Listen to the guitars. Yes, listen to the lyrics. I have to remind musicians of this. <laughs> um, I asked on Facebook one time, on my personal page, if you're a musician, if you studied theory formally, you have kind of a even a decent knowledge of it, do you even notice the lyrics or do you have trouble learning lyrics? And uh, it was a shot in the dark, but it proved successful because I got overwhelming response from musicians. Yeah, I have trouble with lyrics. <laughs> It's not something that you get from non-musicians because when they listen to it, they're they're drawn to the lyrics. They listen to it. But when you're a musician, you're so busy listening to these other things that when you focus on the lyrics, these other things go away and you lose a little bit of the satisfaction of the diving in to the music. Uh, also for pop, you know, talking about this, how are the background vocals used? How is the overdumbing used? What are some of the riffs and the common patterns throughout? Okay, so for classical music and, you know, when you're listening to multiple recordings, kind of comparing the recordings, here's a checklist for that. What do you like most and dislike about each specific performer or conductor or orchestra? How do the tempos differ? And what did you think about that? How do the dynamics differ? What are the differences in recorded sound quality and does that affect your opinion? Some people will say, you know, the, there's some recordings from like the 1940s and 50s that people highly recommend, you know, of a specific piece, even though the recording quality is largely inferior to one that would be done, you know, anytime in the last 20, 30 years. If you're listening to an orchestra piece, take time to focus on the woodwinds, take time to focus on the strings, take time to focus on the brass, take time to focus on the percussion and other instruments. This is not a comprehensive list. And I hope that you'll add to it. Listening is uh, uh, an act of discovery, self-discovery. And it's so cool when you're listening to something and you hear something on your own and you say, that is really interesting. That is really neat. And you go to discover that. And it, and it influences you as a musician. It adds to your knowledge. It adds to your toolkit. Listening can be fun. 
I do hear sometimes from musicians. They just get, they just want to listen to music. Sometimes they get kind of tired of actively listening to music. It is perfectly fine. <laughs> you, you take some breaks from that. Just listen to music and enjoy it. But don't exclude active listening from your life. You're missing a key element that you need to grow as a musician. It is work. It's not as fun. But it can be fun as you get the joy of the process. So again, let's welcome this 21st tool to our Musician Toolkit. Something more for you to explore. Active listening. And let's get better at it as musicians. And use this to become more familiar with more music and also to learn from it. So that's it for today's episode. And I just want to remind you of a few things. First of all, clicking five-star rating and offering a brief review really would help us so much to become discovered by new listeners. The other thing that really helps is if you will share this episode. And I would invite you to do that. And I just also remind you of just a special thank you to Fonz, uh, who allows me to share this link that you can go uh, go check out for a free trial that's definitely worth it if you have a private studio of music or any other kind again thank you so much for listening and you know make sure you if you're checking this out for the first time please subscribe and follow this podcast you can also find this podcast on youtube my channel is at david lane music one if you prefer to watch while uh, while this is going on um do check out my website davidlanemusic.com if you go to davidlanemusic.com slash toolkit you can go directly to the podcast feed and you can also find other other aspects of my site if you wish to explore so that is all of episode 13 i'll be back with you next week